1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to talk with Elizabeth Hope Murray, Associate Professor of Security Studies and International Affairs at Embry Riddle University, about her new book, British Responses to Genocide The British Foreign Office and Humanitarianism in the Ottoman Empire co-written with her colleague, Amy Grubb, and unfortunately Amy is not able to be with us today. Um, But Amy and Hope's book is is, is a careful examination of British attempts to reconcile political and humanitarian objectives in in what that government called the Near East, to reconcile those objectives with the resources available to it in the years after what, what most Westerners think of as the end of World War I. It's a fascinating book, uh, carefully researched and to extensively documented, um, and a depressing one, uh, although maybe Hope disagrees with me and we'll, we'll talk about that in the interview. Um, but it's, I found it fascinating and I'm looking forward to talking about it. So Hope, thanks for joining us and welcome to, to New Books in Genocide Studies.
0: Kelly, thank you so much. Uh, let me begin by uh, giving Amy's apologies for not being here today. She really wanted to be here and it's lovely to be considered amongst such other uh, peers that you've had. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: So we always start the same way. Uh, And so uh, I'd like to uh, ask you to say a little bit about yourself and how you became an academic and how you became interested in mass violence.
0: I became an academic on accident. <laughs> I think that <laughs> happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I became interested in, uh, in mass violence um, when I was a child. <laughs> uh, when I was in seventh grade, so uh, for any international listeners, when I was about 12 years old, I had an exceptional teacher. And every few weeks we would start on a new theme and it was a history class. We'd start a new theme, but we didn't ever know uh, what it would be on. And this teacher's classroom was set up in a U shape. And uh, so she would kind of stand in the middle and walk around and talk about us. Well, we came in one day, and there was uh, this whiteboard that had been covered up. We all come in and sit down. She doesn't say anything. And she's going around, she has a bag of, of candy. Now I love candy as a kid and I don't think I liked it so much after this, but at that point, man, I really wanted it. Well, she was going around and I was almost the last person on the opposite side from where she started. Some people were getting candy and some people weren't getting candy mm-hmm. and I couldn't figure it out. What, what are these people doing to get candy? Like we're all perfect little children sitting there with our big smiling faces um, And so she gets in front of me and she she has the last piece of candy in her hand. There were two other people that could have gotten that piece of candy. But I was like, I want it. I don't know what I need to do to get it. But at that point, so some of you will know me, but I should preference this by saying that I am a white woman and I have strawberry blonde hair. And that day, I will never forget. I was wearing my hair in two long plaits, uh, two long braids. That mm. and they, at that time, my hair was very long. It went almost all the way down to my waist. And I just looked up at this teacher with my big blue eyes, and I, you know, my braided hair, and I just gave the biggest smile that I could give. And she looked at me, what felt like an eternity. And she really slowly gave me this piece of candy. And she turned around and unveiled the whiteboard. And when she unveiled the whiteboard, it was one of the pictures that's very famous of uh, a pile of bodies Mm. at the Buchenwald camp. It was a photograph taken by a U.S. uh, airman as part of the liberation And I mean, we were all shocked, like we're 12 years old, right? No preparation for this. And she says, for the next two weeks, we're gonna talk about the Holocaust. Mm. And this is, I do not, by the way, uh, encourage people to do this to young (laughs) children. Um, But this was my experience, right? We are gonna talk about the Holocaust and that's the extermination of uh, the Jews and other people by the Nazis. And she said, if you got a piece of candy, you would have been considered part of the Aryan race, part of the people that they either wanted to be Nazis or were Nazis. Mm. And if you didn't, you probably would have been killed. And in that moment, at 12 years old, I recognized the perpetrator in myself, Mm. because at that moment, I just wanted what she was giving. I wanted that thing. And I know that if I got it, my peers weren't getting it. Now, of course, there's a whole story in there about resource allocation and you know, the connections between resource, resource security and genocide. And that's another aspect of my research that I look at. And I think we all know why now. Um, but I consistently go back from that moment at 12 years old, I became, I mean, it was a a great sort of six weeks or however long it was that we studied the Holocaust and read the diary of Anne Frank and all the other like normal things that a 12 year old does. Um, But I never really turned away from uh, an interest in political violence or um, uh, an interest in history, process of democratization, like even going up through high school, all the way through college. So then I became an academic. Uh, I mean, it was the job that I got, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I did a, I, I intentionally set off to do a master's degree in nationalism studies uh, at the University of Edinburgh after completing an undergraduate degree in IR, um, where I studied Germany, by the way. I, 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 I did a look at, it was a pre, pre-Nazi Germany uh, and radicalization in pre-Nazi Germany. Um, and so I went off to do a degree in nationalism studies. I thought I was going to study democracy in India, but I very quickly got sucked back into um, uh, the ideology of genocide in the context of war. I tried to leave. I, I actually went uh, after my master's degree and I taught um, ninth and 10th graders, or 13, 14 year olds, okay, a few 15 year olds, uh, um, for a year after. But I just, at that point, I had. I don't know if it was an angel or a demon on my shoulder, but I just couldn't, um, I couldn't, couldn't stop. So Mm -hmm. I went back and did my PhD. I, I can only describe it as in the terms of being called to continue doing that research. I just, I could not stop doing it without knowing that I was turning away from something that was an important part of myself. Mm Um, And you, I mean, many people who are listening to this podcast will know when you get to the end of a PhD, you're jumping off a cliff and you're going to take whatever job you get. And um, I applied for all the jobs. And that includes government jobs and private sector jobs and academic jobs. Um, And I was also... Uh, this is going to surprise some people who know me, but I was also um, looking into the process of becoming an Episcopal priest. And Mm -hmm. that's really what it came down to. Do I want to uh, pursue an academic life or do I want to uh, pursue um, a a, a different kind of life and service? And um, when I got offered a postdoc in African history with Jürgen Zimmerer at the University of Hamburg, and I thought, Okay, this is well, this is where I'm going to go. This is what I'm going to do, and um, that's it. That that's so that's how that's how it happened to me. Wow,
1: it's a remarkable story, huh? So you teach every Riddle, but you and you write, but you also serve as the president for uh, an organization called the International Network of Genocide Scholars, and and we have listeners who are graduate students or who are journalists who who are interested in the field, but may not know anything about the way the field is organized or, so can you talk a little bit about, um, I believe it's INOGS and say something about what what it is for and and how people might be involved?
0: Well, INOGS is one of two uh, networks or associations in genocide studies that exist to serve the discipline. And uh, INOX was established in Berlin in 2005, we had our first conference in 2007, and since then we have worked to serve as a nexus point. For anybody with a background in genocide studies, you know that people come to genocide studies with backgrounds in almost every discipline, from psychology to history, sociology, but also law economics, I mean, pick archeology, span right? I mean, pick your discipline. And then of course, people who are invested in genocide studies often come that way through advocacy. So uh, we wanted to be a space where those people could all come together and discuss the research they were doing or using. And so every other year we host a conference Somewhere in the world, everyone from all over the world is invited. We've only, uh, we're talking in July of 2022, and we've only just finished mm-hmm. uh, our conference in Mexico City. And I'm pleased to announce that our 2024 conference is going to be held uh, in L.A., and you can see the INOG's website for more information about that. So aside from the conferences, we also see, so that's every two years that we have a conference. And in between times, we also have an active social media engagement. So if you ever want to uh, post anything on social media that has that broader reach or genocide specific reach, then please email it to us. We always do that for our members. We also have just recently redone our website, which has enabled us to really offer more benefits to our members. So one of the most important things that INUGS does is the production of the Journal of Genocide Research, the the JGR. The Journal of Genocide Research is one of the top ranked um, and most critically peer reviewed journals and genocide studies that exist. And a lot of that has to do with the great work of our editorial team that's headed up by Dirk Moses. Um, the journal is really uh, not only an excellent place to be published, but if you are really looking for cutting-edge research in the field on a regular basis, we put out four journals a year. Several of those are usually um, special issues, so you get a really deep dive. Our latest issue is a special issue on the Ukraine. So considering what's going on right now, um, It's something that we really encourage listeners to have a look at. Um, And if you are an INOGS member, you can get uh, every issue that has ever been published of the JGR through the INOX website. So you get that with your membership. Um, We also provide a place where people can come and share their own publications or conference papers and especially for younger scholars, that's a great way to get to interact with more advanced scholars in the field. Is you know to see where they can go, and contact information is available for those people. So within the network, mm-hmm. um, if you're if you think, oh, I want to be a member of Inogs, but I don't want any of my public information to be out there. That's okay. You can be anonymous, right? You don't have to be included in what we call our member library. But it, it's a really wonderful way to bridge that gap between emerging scholars and uh, uh, more established scholars in the field. Um, we also provide a grants and fellowship list, which we can all benefit from, and this day, uh, very limited funding. Um, we, uh, we look at funding from a wide variety of sources that are applicable to scholars in many different parts of their career, we particularly highlight funding that's available for um, emerging scholars and particularly scholars from the global south because funding is so limited. So we try to highlight that on a regular basis. So um, if you're listening and you're not a member of INOGS, I really encourage you to consider it. We have a lot of difference. Um, we try to work within a wide variety of financial means. So do have a look um, and see we would love to hear from you. Um, And it's a discipline that's growing. So uh, we hope that these kind of resources that we offer really help to serve the the discipline in which we work.
1: And if they're interested in learning more, what's the website address?
0: Um, Kelly, I'll send it to you and hopefully we can maybe put it in the show notes. But it's really simple. It's www.inogs.org dot com, I-N-O-G-S, International Network of Genocide Scholars. Excellent.
1: And so we're, we're going to spend most of our time talking about your new book, but this is not your first book. So, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about disrupting pathways to genocide. What, what, what did you want to do with the book? How did it go? What's, what's the elevator pitch about the book?
0: Well, Disrupting Pathways of Genocide was another accident. It was meant to be Pathways of Genocide, but the publisher thought it sounded too much like a how-to book. (laughs) So uh, we decided (laughs) that Disrupting Pathways of Genocide was more appropriate. And um, that book is my... uh, It's hard to pick a favorite child, especially because Mm -hmm. I just just had one in my new book. But... um, I, I do really love that book. That uh, is something that I still feel very proud of doing. And in disrupting pathways, what I was trying to show was to contest this idea that uh, we don't know how genocide happens. You know, like what? Why did it become genocidal? You know, like what happened? There are various pathways of uh, or trajectories of mm. radicalization. So what I was really, the question I was really trying to answer is, how did we get from patriotism to genocide? Mm. And I was also trying to push back against the idea that had arisen largely out of Holocaust studies, but that still persisted in genocide studies at that time, more generally, that um, ideology didn't matter. Mm. And uh, I I believe that ideology is hugely influential. I would agree with Michael Mann that it's a source of social power, right? Ideology is about power. So as genocide scholars, we have to address it, but we can't look at it in a vacuum. So the other thing I tried to do in that book was look at that intersection between ideology and events. So take, for instance, so I looked at three case studies. I talked about the Ottoman Empire, which I talk about in my current book. I looked at the, uh, the Holocaust or the persecution of multiple other groups uh, under the Nazi state. And then I looked at, at the genocide in Bosnia or the breakdown in Yugoslavia. So for instance, take Kristallnacht. I looked at that moment but I didn't just look at at that moment itself. There are plenty of other people, many scholars who are much better Holocaust scholars than I am to to please go somewhere else and learn about Kristallnacht. But what I wanted to know is how did Kristallnacht change the narrative Mm. of of Nazi ideology? Did it change the narrative of ideology? So, and what I found is, okay, of course, ideology fed into Kristallnacht, but Mm. after that event, was a significant change and then there are other moments in my case studies that i look at where there wasn't so much a uh strong ideological ideological influence that led to an event but after the event the ideology around the event became critical to the process of radicalization so that was the that was one thing um i also contested, and I still believe you'll you'll see this through all of my work, really, Um, I I introduce a challenge to the idea of othering. So I actually have uh, another publication that came out before the first book that just happened to get published before the first book. So the Mm -hmm. book is where I created it in my mind, and then the article got published first, but only just. But challenging this idea of the other, because as we see in this book, never in genocide do we only have one victim, Mm -hmm. ever. And we also don't, but the problem with using the term victim is that you have to look at it after the fact, Mm -hmm. right? So I was looking at how we got from patriotism to genocide. So the run up, so there weren't victims of genocide yet in say 1928 in Germany that we didn't have we had victims of persecution um but not not genocide right and so so how so we need a term that is you know released from the victim terminology uh but we also really can't use other because there are too many others there are too many other groups um and even radicalized other i felt like well that really also doesn't work because, again, if we look at something like Yugoslavia, like, yes, we have Bosnian Muslims, but Croatians were also an enemy of the state. You know, they were also a kind of radicalized other, but we don't really see what happens to Bosniaks happening to Croatians, for instance. You know, I mean, it's not quite the same. You know, why the Jews is kind of the ultimate mm-hmm. question. And so I introduced the concept of anti-nation, right? Something that is the opposite of the nation that cannot Mm. uh, exist while the nation exists. And um, I just personally have found it a very helpful framework to use when answering that question of why that particular victim, why does this kind of, why does this victim share this unique ideological space? Because it doesn't share, They don't share. In many cases, possibly with the Holocaust as an exception, though I might debate that. In many cases, the experience of violence or genocide or massacre or mass rape, whatever it is, is shared by many other groups. Mm -hmm. So, but these groups do tend to share unique ideological space. So um, yeah, that's that's disrupting pathways of genocide in a nutshell.
1: And so you move then with some, I'm sure other article length writing or essays to disrupting pathways to genocide so so this is a much more specialized title than your first how did you end up and you and amy i should say how did you end up deciding to write this or sorry not disrupting um, path, sorry, my mistake yeah. um to uh British responses to genocide that makes more British sense. responses to
0: genocide. well well i mean for me it wasn't such a big leap. I did, I do have an an intermediary book uh, Mm -hmm. that's Environments of Security that I published uh, with John Lanici and Jim Ramsey, um, which introduces this, the resource idea that I mentioned earlier, right, resource contestation in genocidal states. Um, But for me, especially having gone into that area, which is one I will continue to go back to, you know, kind of have this like let's think about the future of genocide studies mm-hmm. and then let's think about the past, particularly this area It's just my, my two intellectual loves. But for me, in a way it was coming home because disrupting, um, uh, disrupting pathways of genocide introduced me to this time period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lived in Britain for many years. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I did my master's degree, my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Um, but also, when Amy and I were coming up with the idea that became this idea, mm-hmm. um, Europe was in another, just another, uh, refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. And so, we started talking about writing a piece, a significant piece of work, not a book yet, but, you know, we, we sort of thinking about writing something about refugee crises in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, that impacted Europe. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, when we started looking at that, of course, you see the, uh, the colonial arm of mm-hmm. British power politics. And um, so it, that's how it, that transition kind of happened. Mm-hmm. She comes from a more political science background. Um, and has spent a number of years both comparing and then uh, specializing in uh, Kenyan and Northern Irish uh, Mm -hmm. political conflict. She has experience working in China. So there were her interests and focus on different levels of political violence. My history and background looking at uh, genocide more clearly, and then this case specifically um, came together and looking at like, let's let's take an outsider's perspective. So we're you know, both of us have really looked at perpetrators and those who experience, you know, the violence of genocide. Um, not to say, I mean, what we found is that, you know, to reify the idea that witnesses also experience genocide in a very mm-hmm. clear way. We don't talk about that so much in the book, but Um, It became very real for us, but it was, it wasn't a big leap. You know, I mean, I think I, I, it took a while to get there, but now that we're on the other side of it, it makes sense. Uh, It makes sense for both of us as Mm -hmm. far as the way that uh, our interest has gone and the way our own research narratives have evolved.
1: Hmm. So maybe a couple kind of questions to set the stage. One of them you could probably write a whole book on, but I'll ask you not to say a book's worth of stuff. But but you do introduce the book by by raising questions about the structure of British foreign policy decision-making. So how who are the actors that you're going to talk about in this book? How, do the, how does the British government in 1918 make decisions and how does that shape the kind of debates you'll engage in the book?
0: I love this question, Kelly, because at this moment in history, Britain is trying to make foreign policy in the same way that it always has, but also differently. Mm. So uh, there are, when we look at the, so we're looking at the foreign, let me start with the easy question. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at the foreign office. Now the foreign office, is not set up like the U.S. Department of State. If you are familiar with how that works, then understand the Foreign Office is similar, but different, um, even historically. And the the way that the Foreign Office has evolved, right? There are kind of moments, not surprisingly, right? There are moments of like real revolution and transition uh, in the Foreign Office. And one of them happens in 1919. So, in in the middle of this kind of upheaval that's happening after world war 1 you have some significant shifts that happen in the foreign office now the reason we're looking at the foreign office is firstly certainly not lastly <laughs> firstly to look to fill a gap in scholarship because when other scholars talk about british foreign policy particularly during this time, regardless of whether they're talking about the Ottoman Empire or elsewhere, there is a tendency, and I feel this tendency, to talk about British foreign policy as if it was uncontested and holistic. Mm. And there's also a tendency to read speeches by or understand the intention of British prime ministers as being British foreign policy, right, being the policy. And even uh, there's a lot of work done even on secretaries of state. Mm-hmm. Once you get beyond that level, uh, academic research is limited and actually assessing key actors and how they both interpreted their, these policy initiatives and interpreted these ideological initiatives. Um, we, so we kind of wanted to look at this, this intersection, right, because it's really important. The Foreign Office receives intel on the ground, right? Of course, at the time, so does the war office, right? They work hand in hand together a lot, which we show in the book. The consul, what, what had been the consular office, which was until uh, this time period was a totally separate entity in British government, mm-hmm. right? Uh, receives most of the field reports and sends them on. Mm-hmm. So what what happens during this time period is when they, they, uh diplomatic service and the consular Corps become one, And then they are liaising with the high commission in Constantinople, Istanbul, and then sending that forward. So it's like a game of telephone, Mm. right? So a prime minister says this, the secretary of state disagrees. So there's a modification on the message that happens one step down to the Under Secretary of state, right? And then the under assistant secretary of state gets involved and he's trying to read the handwriting of the assistant secretary of state, which is terrible. And so it passes it on down and then it gets to, and then it goes back up the line. Then of course you have other key actors. I mentioned the war department and treasury which are hugely involved at this point in time. And that's where a whole nother book can be written. But the looking at these, we're really trying to focus on these mid-level actors. So um, consul generals, which is actually a quite elite post, but would certainly be considered mid-level in the context of prime minister to uh, foreign secretary or secretary of state, um, right? And so we're really kind of looking at these different levels of secretary who are in London, And then these these people who are on the ground, um, we generally refer to them as local actors, which we try to separate from Turkish authorities, right? So local British actors um, who are trying to implement these policies at the lowest level. Um, And so that's one of the key roles that we think the book fulfills is actually seeing how do these Policies of you know this very strong ideology, of humanitarianism, that Britain holds at the end of World War One. That Britain is this great moral good. That uh, you know Britain is the world leader in goodness and uh, gentlemanliness and the way to. I mean, very patriarchal, right? I mean, the, the Britain is going to teach you how to do it right, the best economics to visit, right? but they can teach you how to be good. I mean, it, from today's perspective, we can look on that as kind of rubbish, but then we remember, you know, like American, we, America has a very imperialistic, also often paternalistic framework. And, you know, that's easy to uh, to see represented here at the end of World War One. And then you see that change over the years of the book. And what we see is the, that the humanitarian goals are still expected to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a change in the Foreign Office by the Foreign Secretary, by even the Prime Ministers that we look at. They still expect the Foreign Office to, to get to the end, right, to uh, to achieve these goals. But the resources and the policies um, diminish mm-hmm. over this time period in a really radical way. And so we see, you mentioned that this is a, It's a sad book. It's a very frustrating book, but it's also a a book that I think mimics the experience of many public servants, Mm -hmm. um, which is a true dedication to fulfilling a humanitarian ideology that they feel very passionately about. Um, regardless of what's happening around them. And we do we see those shining lights and we see them in London as well as on the ground. It's quite easy to say, oh yeah, well, actors on the ground are always going to feel that way, but mm-hmm. we see that in both places. And we see the opposite of both places. We can't do anything. There's nothing to do here. We can't do anything about that. Well, that's just how they're going to act. You know, we see telegrams like that coming from the field hmm. as well as coming from London. Um, so they're... Uh, it's a frustrating time um, for, for Britain because we really see a diminishment of power. Um, and they come out of World War One thinking they have won the war and they are in control of this part of the world. They're in control of that part of the world uh, because the Paris Peace Conference says that they are in control of that part of the world. And, you know, they, they and Mudros, the Mudros Armistice says that first, by the way, in 1918 and the 20 comes around with the Treaty of Severus. And it says it even more certainly. Um, and with the rise of the Ataturk and the nationalist movements, we see that, that I mean, it, that's it's just not realistic. Mm-hmm. But the goals remain the same. I mean, it is, a, there's a lack of reality there that exists. Um, but, we're trying to show how these local actors negotiated this relationship um, and who else they had to work with in order to make that happen.
1: Mm, mm -hmm. So that's a wonderful survey and answer to the question and survey of the argument. Uh, Let's pick at that a little bit and and maybe get down a little bit farther into the details. And the first place I would start, I guess I read the title and I thought briefly about introducing the podcast by only giving the title rather than the subtitle, because of course the subtitle has the years in it. And I may be dating myself, but when I was in graduate school, World War I ended on November 11th of 1918, and then it was peace. And somehow in the last years since I was in graduate school, we have come to become increasingly dubious about that notion that World War One as an event, if not a legal concept ended in 1918. So what what is the situation on the ground in what I will follow the lead of the British in calling the Near East, knowing that that's a problematic term, but that is the term they use in November of of 1918. And, and, And how did the British policymakers see the future for that region?
0: Well, I should tell you that um, you're you're not alone. That <laughs> uh, Britain certainly thought that mm-hmm. so, all right, So the Mudros Armistice, which was signed, that ended World War One in Turkey, right? Ended the ended the fight with the Ottoman Empire. That's that particular armistice. That signed in November, mm-hmm. nineteen eighteen. The the date we all remember. Um. That was the end of the war, as far as Britain was concerned. And certainly, uh, uh, Austin Chamberlain, who was the, the uh, chancellor of the Exchequer, certainly agreed. Um, you know, he was, uh, uh, and ye old Winston Churchill, who we all know and love. Mm. Uh, he was very, at the, at the time, he was the Secretary of War and Air. And he was very clear that Britain was done, right? The war was over. Uh, The problem is, is that there were a lot of people in the at the time still Ottoman Empire uh, who disagreed Mm -hmm. and more problematically, Greece, of course, saw this as an opportunity for them to expand their, uh, expand their own territories or um, establish a strong foothold in territories that were under dispute. This was really problematic. For for Britain because they were done. Uh, the problem happens is that um, the Treaty of Sevres, which is signed in 1920, specifically states that Allied military will intervene mm-hmm. if uh, persecutions against minorities continue. I mean, I'm very I'm I'm truncating something that is you know diplomatic speak. But there was no, no, none, none of the Allied forces and especially Britain who was considered, they considered themselves the Allied force. So of course we have France and we have Russia, we have Italy, we have other players that play in this game, especially France becomes very important. But they really wanted the war to be done. And to the extent that as we see in the first and second chapters the tenure rule is passed which basically says that Britain is now determining not to deploy its military anywhere for 10 years and this is how we're going to save a lot of money and uh so they recall hundreds of thousands of British military which of course want to go home but from a foreign office perspective just a few I mean like five or I mean something like just a few, very small numbers in some cases, prove major deterrence to stopping atrocity. Sometimes on like, as a, you know, they're saving five people or they're saving 15 mm-hmm. people, um, but, or you, I mean, or it can be much larger, right? It can be much larger and, and where there are no British military, where there is no British military presence, um, sometimes in just a neighboring town, there, there are massacres, right? There are atrocities. And so we see the effectiveness of just having a, any kind of military presence. Um, it's really working and military officers serve as intelligenceers, So they're also, I, I, not so much spying because this is conquered territory, but uh, from the British perspective, right? It's conquered territory. But they're telling, they're witnessing these acts of atrocity. It's a continuation of policies of genocide. You know, I mean, it, it, the, the thing is, is that it's not just that the war doesn't stop in 1918. It's that the genocide doesn't stop in mm. 1918. They weren't done, right? There were still Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire in 1919 and 1920. There are still Greeks, Assyrians. I mean, these minorities who have been targeted throughout the war, some scholars will say, oh, by the time we get to 1918, the genocide during the war was so effective. There were so few people left. Well, that's true and that's false. False because some people also thought, other people thought the war was over, refugees, and they were coming home Mm. and they then were massacred. Mm. And so just because the war is over and these treaties have been signed, One of the problems we see is a hesitation, uh, by hesitation, I mean, a complete disregard to follow up um, on these treaties, particularly by nationalist forces. This comes in later once that really holds traction. But local, I mean, like I'm talking about mayors, chiefs of gendarmerie, right? The, The police, local authorities, people who had perpetrated the genocide, they we're still in office. I mean, they—they they were still there. They, they were so they're not all of a sudden going to stop uh, because a treaty has been signed, you know, somewhere off the coast, as the Mudros Armistice was, or in Luson, or where. You know, I mean, that that Luson helps sort of, but by 1924, things are looking pretty empty. Um, so the British military plays a key part. When that goes away, that's a major resource. And is the Foreign Office saw that as an open door. If we take military out of here, and British military officers themselves were saying this, if we leave, we bad things are gonna happen. You know, we're gonna see the continuation of these at- atrocious events, right? Of these, there's a lot of concern about what was happening to women. Uh, there was a lot of concern about what was happening to children. Um, so there was a wide understanding people in the military who were on the ground, as well as these consular officials who were on the ground. Often they were the same people because consular officials had gone off to fight and now they were being redeployed into civil service. Um, so by the time we get to the to 1920, so spring of 1920, the Treaty of Sevres is signed, which we uh, most, if you're of, my generation, Kelly, the gear generation, right? We were kind of taught that uh, the Treaty of Versailles is kind of the treaty that ended World War I. Well in that that isn't it for 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 Turkey. It was the Treaty of Sevres, which was signed in the spring of 1920, um, and accepted by the Sultan, because he had to at that point, uh, but the Ottoman parliament would ratify it. And then the nationalist movement kicks up and starts gaining power. And the same people who were in the Turkish military, many of whom were perpetrating atrocities, committing genocide um, against Christian minorities, join the movement and continue the persecution, mass atrocity of uh, Christian minorities um, under a different different leader. Um, I want to, I, I just want to take a minute Mm-hmm. We use the word genocide in the book, and it is what's happening. I mean, we've, uh, we try very clearly to show a continuation between genocide during the war and genocide after the war, although we, we are intentionally not looking at the war years because of limited access to intelligence mm-hmm. that Britain had during the war, but it's one continuous threat, the reason why I am not using genocide more when I talk about this, using that term, is because the foreign office didn't use that term. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the term to use. So they they said, you know, atrocities against women, if they were too delicate to say rape, and sometimes they were, but sometimes they said it anyway, right? You, you do see them talking about mass rapes. Um, usually, right, concerns about women in the Marmara region. I mean, read that as mass rape and, you know, gender gender atrocities, Um, and we kind of look through the diplomatic speak here, but but Lemkin was so moved by his family's experience in the Armenian genocide Mm -hmm. that he pushes through, you know, throughout the Holocaust for the term genocide to be accepted, Um, but it's, this, it's this experience, this fact that we don't have anything except for crimes against humanity to talk about this. So the foreign office, the consular service, they are not using this term. I'm not using this term because it's not happening. Um, we you, you just use the terms that are being used constantly through all of the writing. Mass atrocity, crimes against humanity, egregious persecutions. I mean, oh, we all recognize that mm-hmm. as very clearly a continuance of genocide that is happening. Um, and if you hear me say something like a genocidal policy, I'm not saying that wasn't genocide itself. I'm saying there's term Paul specific ways that you can commit genocide, not just one, right? Killing is only one way that can be commit genocide, but um, even looking at the Genocide Convention for all of its laws, right, determines multiple ways of committing genocide. In order to do that, you have to have multiple policies. And the uh, what was happening within this time period is different governments, some different actors, but some of the same actors, um, implementing different policies of achieving the same ends, which is the destruction of the body and the, you know, physical I'm, cultural destruction of Christian minorities in this region. So anyway, that was on side, but I think it was important.
1: I wanted yeah. to clarify that. So as I read your book, it seems like there's three broad things that are going on that leave British policymakers at home to disengage from events in what had been or at the beginning of the period still is the Ottoman empire and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about in turn each one of them and you've already mentioned the first one um, and that's the increasing scarcity of resources available and so I wonder if you could say a little bit about um, the way in which the British government prioritized or didn't the Near East as the as the increasing decision by the Treasury to withdraw funds. What, what does that say about it? And do the policymakers, how much do the policymakers fight for humanitarianism as a as a goal or as a tool to keep money coming?
0: So I I mentioned this earlier, but it's important to mention again here, the Greco-Turkish War, the, the specific it's which starts with the invasion of Izmir or Smyrna um, by Greece really screws things up for Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually it screws things up for Greece, and it opens the door for. I mean, if it whether or not Ataturk would have come to power, mm-hmm. right? Whether the nationalist movement would have been successful without the students but um <laughs> As soon as Greece goes to war again, they continue a war, however you want to frame it, mm-hmm. Britain has to be involved in a way they don't want to be involved. They want to be in peacetime that has already been established, that we've won and these you know, troublesome cousins of this nationalist movement, which we refuse to recognize. The Brits considered the nationalist movement the way uh, Western governments tend to think of terrorist organizations, okay? They weren't really the government, so they weren't really gonna work with them. This becomes a big problem when, by the time we get to 1922, and the Ottoman government basically has no power. And the nationalist government, which is Ankara, not in Constantinople, for example, has all, I mean, that has the majority of the power. They're negotiating with France behind behind Britain's back, you know. I mean, all this all from a British perspective, very underhand, ungentlemanly things are, you know, happening. So as far as Britain is concerned, there is this attempt to renegotiate kind of power politics over and over and over again. Britain perceives Greek action, and I am, I do recognize I am. Being slightly hypocritic by talking about British policies, if there were one thing, but I should say Lloyd George, uh, a liberal prime minister, was a huge uh, ally of Greece and a proponent of all things Greek, and was eventually, that's eventually why he lost his the prime ministerial seat. Um, but <laughs> the redistribution of resources towards perceived allies that weren't towing the line was the the be all end all of the problem, right? You're not doing what we say, so we're not gonna give you any money. Um, The flip side of that was that actually thousands of pounds were going towards Armenian, Assyrian, and they wouldn't have said, they rarely would say Greek, relief, because then you have a problem with Turkish relief, but refugee relief, Um, and there's a lot of money going into supporting refugee camps, so we tend to think that after World War I, there's no money in Britain, and this is why we're not going to continue doing these things, Um, but We see, so there's charitable donations, which we do separate from government action. Um, But British taxpayers are donating. So, I mean, to answer your question, Kelly, like British taxpayers are donating considerable sums of money um, towards, particularly, so the uh, Lord Mayor's Armenian Relief Fund becomes one of the largest relief funds that's run. It's run through Save the Children. which is established in 1920, but to give you an idea about that is that although it's headed up by Save the Children, Lord Curzon, who's the Foreign Secretary, is on their board. So is the Arch uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? I mean, there is a huge intersection between government, um, like these the, the people in the Foreign Office, right, and these connections they were making in order to fulfill their humanitarian obligation. And then there's the fact that, um, again, who we call local actors, right, British people in the consular service on the ground are dedicating often large portions of their own budgets to helping with relief work um, all over, everywhere. I mean, it doesn't, really matter where they are stationed. And it also didn't matter to them who it was, right? If they were a refugee, uh, then there was a perception that they deserved that relief aid if it was available to them. We have a tendency to, by we, I'm talking about academics. We have a tendency because we have to have things that are measurable, right? We We have to stop at some point, right? We can't study everything. Um, so we have a tendency to look at the Armenian genocide, right? We have we have a tendency to look at the Greek catastrophe, right? Genocide against Assyrians, but the British Foreign Office didn't see it that way. They they were looking at one landscape of things happening all together. They also saw, by the way, crimes against humanity that were being perpetrated against Muslim civilians, Turkish civilians, um, which were equal to I mean. Uh, you know, they're it was, it was sometimes done in retribution, right? So this Turkish band came and murdered my family, and so I'm taking my own band of Greek soldiers, and we are going to go murder, you know, in and massacre in another town, right? In retribution, and and that goes both ways for sure, and. We certainly, there is no doubt that the majority of these atrocities were perpetrated by one side rather than the other side. But the Greeks cannot, they do not have clean hands in this story. Again, this was a problem for Britain because now they're allied with a perpetrator of mass crimes. And so this gets in with the story of funding because it's there. I mean, there's a lot of money that we're talking about here. And particularly the fact that that money was being taken away from needs at home, guess what? Nothing changes, right? We still have this argument in Western politics today, um, but it was a really important one then. Um, But it was still, I mean, money is still going, but military wasn't going to go so the the pushback was relief aid which became um much larger than what britain expected they were not ready for because they didn't believe they they actually believed i mean the foreign office the people that we look at they really believed in the uh Validity of these treaties, you know, there was this sense of, I mean, again, think of that, like a like British gentleman diplomat, you know, you, you say you're going to do it, you put your name on the line, and, and that means you're going to do it, and it's just not realistic. Um, particularly since the Treaty of Severus was very harsh against Turkey, and um, similar to the, right, we had this pushback Versailles was tough on Germany, and so we have World War II, right? Mm. It's just that it happened faster in Turkey, right? We had this nationalist movement um, that was sent to throw out, uh, throw out these foreign forces and people who were seen as allied with them. I've more than answered your question at this point. You well, said I it could be a, a really book. Nice right? We did write a book about it. <laughs>
1: You Did a really nice job of speaking in the other two things I was gonna ask you about, the 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 idea of the changing relationship with Britain's French and Italian allies and and the emergence of a nationalist force in Turkey. So so maybe I'll pick up on where you ended, which is to say, as I understand your arguments in this renegotiation. Maybe that's not the right word. I'll say renegotiation of the, the 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 Treaty of Severus, but maybe it's a whole new treaty. However, you want to say that there seems to be an insistence on the part of British policymakers in Britain that this treaty contain clauses that protect minorities, despite the insistence of people on the ground that those protections were going to be ignored. Uh, and so I wonder, maybe you've just answered that, but, but maybe, you, is. Is that insistence just a way of, for policymakers in Britain to kind of take the moral high ground? Or did they really think that those provisions in a new treaty would make a difference?
0: Well, there's a long history of Britain requiring
1: reforms
0: of the Ottoman Empire in order to provide relief uh, for Christian minorities, but back to the early 19th century. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, with these treaties, Britain tried to do something the same and they tried to do something differently. And this was part of the things that was the same, right? This is continuation. This is how it things have always been done in diplomacy. This is how you did diplomacy. Mm-hmm. The problem was, you had people on the ground saying, this is fine, but unless you put some muscle where your mouth is, we're gonna go nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for example, Very quickly after Severus was passed and Armenia became an independent state, they declared alliance with Russia. Now, Britain saw this as a complete and utter stab in the back. Here they were fighting and advocating for Armenians, and what do you do, right? You ally with the communist state, right? You just so. That became a rationale for we're not going to help the state of our, we might continue to help Armenian refugees that are not an Armenian, maybe maybe a little bit that are, but we're communists. So, but Russia had made it very clear that they, they wouldn't give them a lot, but some troops could be deployed, and that was the deciding fact. I mean, it, there, factors are many, but that was one of them. People on the ground, both minorities, minority communities never stopped mm. advocating in the clearest terms to particularly Britain and France, also Italy, um, the, the need for greater protection. If you want to save us, then this is what we need. The ask was very clear. It was repetitive. And you had enough people on the ground, although it uh, became more limited as time went on. Um, which is also a problem, right? I mean, if you don't, if, if you aren't allowed into an area, that is a red flag that something is going on that you're not supposed to see. So it becomes, um, it becomes a very challenging landscape where either reforming the treaty to get it passed by the parliament or accepted by the, right, which becomes being accepted by the nationalists is the goal that Britain has in 21. And by 22, we see that that can't happen. And so hence the Luson Treaty. The whole reason we have that treaty um, is that it isn't the Severus mm-hmm. Treaty. So it couldn't be saved. And it had to be renegotiated with you know, a landscape of a very successful genocidal action.
1: So I'm really struck by one of your final comments which is that we now see ethnic cleansing as a way, as a tool of genocide. But at the time, British policymakers in the run-up and immediate aftermath of of Lausanne, saw ethnic cleansing as a way to prevent genocide. Can you talk about that?
0: I mean, it's, I have a smile on my face and a chuckle because, but it's ironic. It's uh, the, Great powers at the time um, <laughs> seemed to miss the fact that people will fight for their homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was again, like I, I have said several times, there's a kind of a lack of reality that we see sometimes in British foreign policy during this, this time framework, you know, this belief that, hey, we can still achieve all these humanitarian goals. We're just not going to give you any resources, but you still need to do it. It's still your moral obligation to God, King, and country. You know, it, to fulfill. Well, population transfer has it, it became the solution. Mm-hmm. So, the as genocide scholars, we often hear about the final solution in the context of the Holocaust, right, and the Jewish question. Was what the Nazis were trying to solve, but the Near East question predates the Jewish question, um, and we see this <laughs> the, the 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 Near East question, the Armenian question, like all, all of, we see this in discussions all through this time period and before. And the population transfer became the solution, and I mean it it was. It became the only way, right? Britain decided uh, along with Greece, along with France, along with other actors, that it was the only way to kind of save the, right, I'm gonna use terms of saving the remnants, right? That's kind of the only way is to, the only way to stop the killing is to move people out, right? Is to allow it to be successful, right? Let's, Let's finish the job, but we're not gonna kill people, we're just gonna move them. The, I have to tell you in writing this book, um, we have uncovered a significant number of uh, what I believe to be never before published photographs and Mm -hmm. they're in the book. Mm -hmm. So uh, even if you only get the book, which you can also get as an uh, ebook and you can look at the pictures through that, I really encourage you to look at them. They're from the Save the Children archives. Mm -hmm. Some of and some of those pictures uh, have been very hard to look at and analyze, um, but some of the worst pictures that we have seen that I have seen are pictures of mostly Greeks, but also Armenians and Assyrians. Again, this wasn't isolated to one group, right? <laughs> trying to get out uh, once the population transfer had been announced, uh, you know, people who were trying to get out of was becoming turkey and the kind of devastation that happens because as we often see in genocidal landscapes some people didn't want them to go they wanted them to die and people were desperate to go so you saw them i mean many stories of people who jumped in the water trying to get on a ship or, and were knocked off a ship by people on the ship because they were afraid it was going to sink because there were so many people Parents who had to leave their children, children who didn't survive, because I mean, just really horrible things happened during that transfer. But in the run-up, the conversation was, "We can, we can do this in a very peaceful way. This is the best solution." I mean, I, to be fair, they were stuck between a hard place and a hard place. I mean, there was there was no right answer. The 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 moments the decision to take so many military personnel out of the Ottoman Empire in 1919 and 1920 determined the outcome. It was not a cause. Uh, Let me be very clear. Mm -hmm. Britain did not cause a continuation of this genocide. Uh, But it certainly opened the door. The Foreign Office perceived it as an an opening of the door. Mm for this, for this to continue. And so if the military isn't going in, nobody is going in to save them. You have allies, France and Italy, stabbing them in the diplomatic back by negotiating with the nationalists. You have a clear continuation and dedication to continuation of genocidal policy that you want to stop. What do you do? You ethnically cleanse. Mm -hmm. And Turks and Muslims were relocated. Some of them didn't want to go, they didn't want to leave Greek territory either. Um, We know less about that. There were many fewer uh, Muslims who died moving to Turkey and Greece had to build uh, large numbers of refugee camps uh, or temporary, which became permanent dwellings. Uh, Some of those photos are also in the book. Um, in order to compensate for the huge influx of persons coming in, but it's not something that you know. I think scholarship on the Balkans has really changed our understanding of what it means when a government is moving whole peoples. Right? What what that actually means What that actually means is killing right? mm-hmm. people. It is people are going to die, and they're going to die en masse if the idea is to get an entire people, an entire identity to move. Um, But that's how far we've come, right? I mean, a hundred years ago, that was the solution. Today, because of excellent scholarship, largely around one case study, policymakers do understand that it's just continuing the problem, right? It's allowing the, it's it's a pass, right? And it's also a cover-up. Mm. Um, so, anyway, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, it's a hard resolution to handle, right? Me as the optimist, you kind of mm. want to see that uh, you you want to see another outcome of the story. But there are, I mean, there are some good outcomes of the story. I, can I can I tell a quick story? Please. So one of the people in the foreign office, so I mentioned this, I do mention this in the book. Um, one of the people in the foreign office who um, is a real hater. So he's he's in, he's in, he's in London. Uh, he's a first secretary in the foreign office. There are three levels of secretary. So he's just under the department head. Um, his name, great name, Darcy, Godolphin, Oliphant, the 12th Duke of Leeds, Osborne, excuse me, not Oliphant, Os- Osborne, Darcy, uh, Godolphin, Osborne. And Osborne, he's a hater. He's he. There's no other way to say it. He has, he has no time for refugees. He has no time of, for whining minorities. He has no time. He thinks that Britain should be out of there. People should solve their own problems. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but can we really trust them that they're being killed? I mean, really? Is it really that bad? I mean, this is the, this is the story that we have. Mm. Um, certainly, at the time, I think we we show quite clearly that Osborne is one of the stops when it comes to information flowing up and sometimes information flowing down. Um, that he pushes back quite frequently um, on the great need for more relief or funding or personnel or whatever it is. Uh, Osborne is constantly a dark voice. Mm-hmm. Well, move forward, one genocide later, mm-hmm. and we see that, uh, so he's he's posted in the 1930s to the Holy See, the Vatican. I mean, it's one of the flushest political postings you can get, right? Remember, he's a Duke, so this helps him. Um, But he becomes uh, a real, I'm not going to say, I mean, he plays an important role. Um, He helped conceal more than 4,000 individuals seeking to escape the Nazi regime. Many were Jews, many were Catholics who were very outspoken against the Nazi regime. He paid for their escape largely out of his own funds. He didn't use British funds, he himself did it. Um, and what's even more i mean the, the follow-on of the story is that most of these people survived I mean, 4,000 survivors um, linked to one person and you know the <laughs> how much of his experience right looking back on what happened much earlier on in his career to Armenian minorities right and then seeing it happen again Mm. and instead of saying no right he he says yes like we we don't get to I mean we see him in the in the darkest times right we have other people uh George Bell who uh we end actually with a quote from his his own book um who is the opposite right he's he's he tries, he's, he does everything in his power to stop Osborne, right? And to get as much through. And, and you know, and he's he works on the ground. Um, we see him as a definite foil to Osborne's, uh, you know, dark nature. But the lessons that, I'm not going to say the lessons that were learned from a policy perspective might be limited, but. Um, we had the ability to encounter some truly unique personalities who uh, history is largely just overlooked, right? We we don't see them in genocide studies. So um, it, that's where if I say I found real joy in writing this book, I mean, a lot of frustration and hardship and all the things that come with being a genocide scholar. But in a way, you're writing about your own colleagues. I mean, we were writing about the people who were getting these frontline reports, we were writing about how they dealt with it, how they didn't, we saw a lot of their frustration. A lot of the, we went through a lot of uh, like reports or letters that had been annotated by these advisors, right? No, we can't say that, we have to say this, or, you know, this isn't emphatic enough. We need to really, you know, this isn't, we have to, very important, underlined, underlined, you know, and, it, and we do see also their despair, you know, nothing can be done you know, de- desperate, you know, like we, when a diplomat is using words like destitution, then you know it's really serious. Um, and so it was, uh, I mean, a really an honor and a privilege to get to write about our kind of early colleagues. Um, and it was something that I, you know, I think being a voice for the voice, A, a lot of scho- a lot of genocide scholars talk about their work in the context of being a voice for those who have no voice. Mm-hmm. I have said it myself. I've just heard it at the recent conference that we've done, you know, from other people. Um, and if nothing else, our voice serves as an, this, sorry, our book serves as an important reminder that it's not only victims that have no voice, right? The behind the scenes actors mm-hmm. often also are completely hidden. And it was, um, Frustrating and tormenting and sad, but also a real honor to be able to highlight some of this really important work that was being done to try to save as many people
1: as possible. Well, that seems like an appropriate place to end. So, so I always uh, leave listeners with two uh, two questions, and the first is simple. Uh, I wonder if you could suggest a book or maybe a documentary or a movie or a photograph or something. That you found important as you were doing your research, um, that the audience should read or watch.
0: Well, I I'm gonna I'm gonna mention two things. First, if you want to um, read a little more about Osborne and his kind of great escape, then there's a 1968 book, and there really hasn't been any. There's been very little published since the 60s on him. Um, but called the Scarlet Pimpernel of the Vatican, oh. um, and uh, so you know, I mean, it's old school, and it's written like it's old school, and it's almost like a romance story. But um, if you want a little James Bond in your academic life, uh-huh. then that might be something to look at. I mean, you don't see him in there. You don't. You see a very different person than what we than what we see in our research. But I also just want to give a a real pat on the back or a shout out to dare I say um, the British National Archives online repository is amazing Mm. and if you have never worked with the National Archives at Kew one please go it's an excellent excuse to go to London Um, but it's It's really set up for researchers and this book wouldn't have been possible without their continued support. Um, We made several trips over there. Mm. But beyond that, they also have, as many National Archives do now, they have a growing um, virtual presence and the availability of documents that are now available online is pretty exceptional. From, from World War I, most of the stuff that is available online has to do with the British side of the war, which as I mentioned earlier, the Armenian genocide was something that Britain was more excluded from than not. So those are limited, they're there, but limited virtually. Mm. But what's amazing a great, something to know um, if you need something or you know something is there or you think something is there, Right. If you read the book and you see us reference a file and you want it, um, they will get it to you. Um, it doesn't matter where you are. If you have an email address, there's a fee, of course. You know, I mean, they're taking out time to give you a really excellent quality. Um, the the quality of the file that they'll give you is probably a better photograph than you would take for yourself. Um, but anyway, I if you if you've got a little bit of extra time and you want to have some fun, then a I mean, a great source for digital humanities generally is the uh, British National Archives,
1: so. That's a great suggestion. And then second, uh, and you may be eager about this question or you may dread this question, but what what are you working on now?
0: <laughs> I don't mind this question. We actually have, so Amy and I have also, um, uh, we're just finishing up an article that actually compares at the British Foreign Office's, Office's ideological perspectives on humanitarianism before World War One, and then after World War I. So we're looking at 1912 and 13, so the Balkan Wars, and then we're comparing it to after World War One, and, and right after, so we only look at 18 and 19. Mm. So, um, you know, was, was there a difference, right? How, mm. uh, how, Entrenched is this idea of humanitarianism? Are they doing things differently? What are if we compare pre and post? Then what do we end up with? Um, so that's that is uh, under review. I guess is the best way to put it. That hopefully will be published very soon. Um, and then I have a book chapter I'm working on, getting back to my environmental security uh, stuff, kind of looking at. The renegotiation of concepts of genocide in the era of climate change. So um, we have to understand that genocide changes. Just like colonial genocides don't look like the Rwanda genocide, right? I mean, there are connections, but we have to understand that they might look slightly differently. I believe very strongly that climate change is changing genocide. We still have direct perpetrators, but. The role of indirect perpetrators is becoming much more visible. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, it's just—it's going to be a short chapter. It's more theoretical in that way. I love fortune telling because you can't be wrong, <laughs> um, but <laughs> you have to be a little more delicate. Um, but uh, yeah, that you know—I mean, I—I I think Amy and I will probably come back to this something else that I'm really looking forward to doing um, that's a very distinct connection between this book and this next project that's currently in the very early stage. When you're studying British Foreign Office, you're looking at men. Mm -hmm. We're studying men. We're studying male actors uh, who are consistently writing about the experience of women. So we see that crimes against women, the female body, and then the consequences of that sociologically, we see that in all of this. The League of Nations established the Fifth Commission to address these crimes and to see what could be done to redress these crimes. And um, uh, Keith Vautenpaw has a great book called Bread from Stones that looks at the American policy during this time period. And he talks about this in that book and in some of his other work that hasn't been a wide body of, uh, of research on this. and uh, But the Fifth Commission had a lot of very strong women actors participating in it. And um, I think both of us are really looking forward to, right, we've kind of had this one focus uh, that has given us a Perry pong list of overwhelmingly male actors and really respected uh, the findings and the recommendations of the Fifth Commission. And so, we're looking forward to seeing that other side. Um, yeah, so uh, that's that's those are kind of a few pots. I'm I'm not one of these scholars to my, probably to my own detriment. Whoever just does one thing, um, and I tend to have a couple of different pots on the fire and different you know focuses in my own work. But it certainly keeps things. I'm I'm a genocide scholar, right? Is is the one thread that that pulls everything together for me. So thank you so much. This has been a great chat, a wonderful opportunity. And I hope that some people find it helpful or interesting. And um, please check out INOX. And If you have any questions, uh, I'm pretty easy to find.
1: Those sounded like great projects. I hope that um, you'll be back on the podcast when um, they're completed. And and likewise, thanks for your time. We've been talking with um, Elizabeth Hope Murray about The book, British Responses to Genocide, The British Foreign Office and Humanitarianism in the Ottoman Empire, 1918 to 1923, co-written with Amy Grubb. If you like the podcast, uh, like it, share it, um, follow it, and we'll be back soon uh, with uh, another interview. So until then, thanks so much.